Lord, we do. We thank you and praise you for the cross of Calvary. And Lord, we thank you. It's not a hill that we must climb or a, a task we must fulfill. But Lord, it's the grace of God. You sent your son to suffer and die in our place. So we might have eternal life. Lord, may we never take it for granted. May we never take it lightly. Lord, we ask as we go to your word right now that your Holy Spirit would teach us. You minister to every heart who's here, that's here. We know that we're not here by chance, but by divine appointment. Lord, may your word go forth with power. Not the words of men, but the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. It's great to have you here. Great to see all of you. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We'll continue our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, the second half, for uh, Sunday morning. All right, well, tonight we're going to continue looking at Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Abram and Sarai, who in the last chapter became Abraham and Sarah. And as we know that Abraham started well, God told him to get out. You know, get out from his land, get out from the country he had known, go to a place I will not show, you know, I will show you. He went out not knowing where he was going, absolute act of faith. But he wasn't there very long, and when a famine hit, instead of trusting God, he went down to Egypt. As we've talked about, he brought back a lot of baggage out of Egypt. He lied to his wife, told his wife to lie on their way down. Then he lied about his wife when he got there. And then we know that even to the point where she was about to become a part of the Pharaoh's harem, finally God steps in, preserving the line, the line through which he would bring the children of Israel, the line through whom the Messiah would one day come. He brings a curse upon Egypt. They're sent out of Egypt. Uh, after that curse, Pharaoh has to rebuke uh, Abraham. It's pretty sad when an unbeliever has to rebuke a believer, but that's what happened. And then he leaves from there, and now it seems he's learned something. They come to a place. He, he had brought Lot with him when he went out, which is what he was not supposed to do. When he first left his family, he said, leave your family and go. And he brought his nephew with him. That's going to cause problems we're going to see more of tonight and next week. But then what happens is they are so wealthy that they decide they need to part ways. Lot's servants are fighting with Abram's servants. And Lot says, you know, we can't coexist. And Abram, God bless him, says, you know what? You pick which side you want. You, you want to go to the right, I'll go to the left. And we know that Lot chose based on what looked good. And he pitches tents towards Sodom. Well, in the middle of all of this, you know, Abram does go away. And, and it's, it's a blessing to see how the Lord appears to him. Again, Pastor Dave's opinion, Melchizedek is either a high priest with no genealogy, with no background, who was worshipped and received tithes from him. He's either a man with no genealogy or he's God. I believe it's God. I believe it's Jesus Christ. We're, and I know for a fact that tonight we're going to see Jesus Christ yet again. But here's what's happening is that God comes and ministers to him and God comes and encourages him. And then we notice that Lot, because of the situation he's in, that he gets taken captive. You know, we think the world is the place that's going to bring us peace, and all it does is bring us into bondage. And that's what happened to Lot. He gets taken captive, and, and Abram now, instead of saying, I told you so, I told you so, which some of us might have done, he instead goes out and takes his 318 trained soldiers from his own home, so we know some time has gone by, and he goes out and wins the victory, and he brings Lot and all the possessions back, from Sodom. He frees all the people. We know the king of Sodom then says to him, well, let us give you the stuff. You know, we'll take the people. You can have the stuff. Isn't that a lot what the enemy wants to do? He wants the people. He wants to give us the stuff. You know what? The stuff is irrelevant. The people is what, is what matters. 
And so what happens is that I love Abram's heart in, in that he says to him, you know what, we don't want, I don't want a sandal strap from you unless you take credit when God does something great. I want to keep you out of taking any of the credit for what God is about to do. And so Lot goes away yet again, not learning from this uh, decision. Doesn't, doesn't learn anything from it, but he goes away. And Abram, it seems, has been built up in his faith. Melchizedek has come, and, and now a promise has been made to him by the Lord. He's going to be a great nation. But that promise doesn't come quick enough. And I don't know if anybody else here can relate to that. We get impatient with God. But he gets impatient with God, and what does he do? His wife comes and says, hey, maybe God's plan for us to have all this, this big, huge family, and then eventually through our lineage is going to be uh, you know, all the tribes of Israel are going to come from them. Their, their descendants are going to number as the stars in the heavens. They're going to be a great nation. Maybe it hasn't happened because you're really supposed to sleep with my maidservant. Bad idea. But you know what? Here, here you have Abram not being the spiritual leader, and Abram goes, oh, okay, deal. All right, sounds pretty good. So we know that his wife's old. We're going to see that again tonight. His wife is old. His, the maidservant is young. And he says, okay, I'll do it. And you know what? Our flesh does that. And so he sleeps with her, they end up, he marries her, so the text says, and they end up having a child, she gets pregnant, but once she gets pregnant now, Sarai knows even more so that the problem is her, you know, in her mind anyway. They've been married for, who knows, 70 years, she hasn't been able to give, have a child yet, 60, 70 years, so it must be her problem, and here, you know, Hagar's pregnant, and it says that Hagar begins to look at her mistress, look at Sarai with displeasure in her eyes. And so that hurts Sarai's feelings. She becomes upset. She goes to her husband and blames him. You know, I, she makes a suggestion, you sleep with my maidservant. He does. She gets pregnant and then he blames, you know. And you know what the truth is? It was Abram's fault, ultimately. It was both of their faults. Abram never should have done it. And so we have now have a bad situation with two wives living in the same house. That's never a good situation. That's not going to work out. Don't try it. Bad, bad idea. And so what happens is that Hagar flees because she comes and chastises her and goes after her, and, she, and uh, Sarah does. So Hagar leaves, but praise the Lord for his grace because the Lord sees Hagar as she's headed back to Egypt. He comes to her and he sends her back. And I love that picture that the Lord would come even to Hagar, even though he knew who, he knew who their offspring would be because the Lord loves Hagar. The Lord loves Ishmael, and he loves the descendants as well. Amen? The Arab people today. And so that brings us to last week's chapter that now they've come back and, and uh, you know, it looks like we're coexisting. She did come back and at least tell him what he said because God said to, to uh, Hagar, the Lord said to Hagar, you're going to name your son Ishmael, which means God hears. And so when the baby is born, Abram names his son Ishmael, God hears. So obviously there was some communication He's responding to what the Lord has told her. And that brings us to chapter 18. Well, in chapter 18, God shows up again and gives the prom- or 17, the promise one more time. You know what? And he changes his name from Abram to Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of many nations. Now, that's a tough name to carry around when you have no kids. You know, it's like the, you know, it's amazing. I had a friend in school. He was like six foot nine, 380 pounds, and we called him tiny. You know, obviously this is a, I mean, it's almost the same way. I'm father of many nations. How many kids you got? None. How old are you? I'm 98. I've got no kids. You know what I mean? And, 
And his name is Father of Many Nations. It's almost like a, you know, a, a gag, but again, it's a part of God teaching him to have faith that his promises are done, even beforehand. God already, before the foundation of the world, knew that Isaac would be born. And Isaac was always God's plan. So God reiterates his promise to Abram. He went from him. Abram obeyed God's command. And then remember, he says to him, I want you to go do something to prove that you believe what I have told you. Because remember, he makes a covenant with him. He walks through the the torn animals. We don't have time to go through the whole thing. But then he says to him, I want you to go back and circumcise your children as a mark of the fact that you have a covenant with me. And Abram goes back and he circumcised the children. He's now Abraham. Sarai's name has changed from princess, my princess to princess, from Sarai to Sarah. And so now here we come to chapter 18. Ishmael's living there. He's about 13 years old now. And they're still waiting on the promise, but God had told him, he'd given him a specific time now. And last chapter, he said, within a year, you're going to have a child. So now he knows he's been waiting about 25 years from the first time the promise was made. And now he knows the promise is coming. And that brings us to chapter 18. Now, if you're a note taker, I titled the message tonight, Attributes of a Man of Faith. Because we see now that this man of faith who wasn't always faithful. And you know what? He's going to have times where he's not faithful in the future as well. He's still got one more time of telling his wife to lie and pretend to be his sister. It's still going to happen one more time, amazingly enough. But we see that there are times when Abram is indeed a man of faith. And I praise God that if we have a faithless moment, it doesn't mean we're a faithless person. Amen? doesn't mean that God can never use me again. I'm completely disqualified. Because Abram had, has had faithless moments and faithless times, but God calls him a man of great faith. And he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So in this chapter, having just circumcised all the males, having just entered into that covenant, having responded by faith to what God had told him to do, we're going to see five things. Number one, we're going to see that the attributes of a man of faith are seen in their, the man's relationship with God. Let me say this. Your faithfulness is made evident in what kind of relationship you have with the Lord. Because everything else is a natural outpouring of that. So here are the five things that we see are seeing the relationship with the Lord. Number one, he's at rest with the Lord. You know, it's been said that a, a clean conscience is a soft pillow. And you know, when you are right with the Lord, boy, you are absolutely at rest. And it's not based on your circumstances. It's based on how you stand with him. Number two, he recognizes the Lord. When he sees the Lord, in our case, when we hear from the Lord, we know it's the Lord. If you're walking by faith and you're walking with the Lord, you can hear the Lord whisper and you know it's God. Number three, he has a heart of a servant. The Bible says if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. One of the ways you see the heart of a faithful man or woman is someone who has the heart of a servant. First thing I look for in ministry leaders in this church is the heart of a servant. If they don't have a servant's heart, they will absolutely never be in a position to minister to people here in a a place of authority. Because if they can't serve, how can they lead? Amen? Number four, believes God can do all things. A man of faith, a woman of faith, believes God can do all things even when others doubt. And finally, they intercede on behalf of others. They have a heart of compassion. So let's begin in verse 1 of Genesis 18, attributes of a man of faith are seen in his relationship with the Lord. Number one, he's at rest with the Lord. 
Then it says in verse 1, Then the Lord appeared to him. Now this is right after the children had been circumcised. All of them had been circumcised. They kind of left themselves wide open to a, an attack. But again, an act of faith. God told him to do it. He didn't ask, for, you know, didn't ask why or how. He just did it. He obeyed. And now not very much time has gone by. And the reason we know this, he said in a year from now you're going to have a child. And as we come to this point, his wife is not yet pregnant. And so it may have been days or weeks, at the most, a couple of months. It says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. You know, I love this picture. And those of you who've been to Israel, we go up to this place where... uh, I don't know what they call it, I forget what they call it, but it's where you, know, you visit Abraham. There's a guy dressed up like Abraham, and you ride camels around. And, but where the tent is, is right where Abraham, right around the area where Abraham would have lived. And let me just tell you something. It's hot. I mean, really hot. And I like hot. I really like, my wife says I'm a lizard. I love the heat. I, mean, I absolutely love the heat. But you know what? It's amazing how hot it would be in that desert. And here we see Abram sitting in his tent, got the tent flap open i just love this picture and he's just sitting there and he's kind of resting in the shade in the heat of the day and you know what again maybe a stretch from some people's perspective but to me that's a place that a man can be when he's walking right with the lord he can be at a place of rest you know there's a the bible talks about the sabbath talks about entering into his rest as well and you know what i believe here we see abram where before you know a few chapters before he says don't be afraid that's the beginning of the chapter don't fear that was because he was afraid now he goes from fear to rest he's sitting there he's just waiting the lord's going to appear to him we'll get into the details of that in a moment but he's sitting there and he's just resting in the heat of the day and i just love this picture here's this 99 year old man just resting in the Lord. Now again, this is down in southern Israel, sitting in the shade by the door and resting. And often they would kind of look out because when travelers would come by, there were no hotels in those days. So if you were traveling in the desert, you would usually travel only in the morning. And you know, you'd get out of the sun by noontime because it was just unbearable. And wherever you were, if you were passing by, you, you know, someone would bring you in. There was a great deal of hospitality. Some believe that he was kind of looking out for them. I believe he's just resting. He's just waiting. He's just, he may have also been praying. may have been just resting. Because it talks about him. He was sitting there by the door in the heat of the day. And then it says in verse 2, and he lifted up his eyes. So that means prior to that, his eyes or his head was bowed. So he's either resting and just you know, taking this time to relax in the Lord. It's the heat of the day, having a, a little nap, or he may have been seeking the Lord. God had just given him a great promise that he was going to have a son, but he's in this place of rest. And there's such a peace when we walk in obedient faith that we can enter into his rest. And guys, rest doesn't come from your circumstances, but your relationship with the Lord. If you are not at peace right now, a change of your circumstances will not bring you peace. It can bring you temporary happiness. It can bring you a temporary feeling of fulfillment. But real peace comes not from where you stand physically, but who you stand with spiritually. And if you're with the Lord, you can be at peace in the midst of a great war, in the midst of hunger, in the midst of famine. And you know what? You cannot be at peace if you don't have the Lord, even when you seem to have everything from the world's perspective. And so the number one thing that we see here, number one thing that just an attribute of faith is that 
there's this sense of peace, a sense of rest. So he's sitting, he's resting in the shade in the heat of the day. It says there, the first part of the verse, then the Lord appeared to him. And again, we'll get more detail when we get to the next verse, but the word for Lord there is Jehovah. Jehovah appeared to him. The word Jehovah, one of the many names of God, but in the Old Testament, it means self-existent, eternal God. So the self-existent, eternal God appeared to Abraham. You think, man, he's lucky. Wow, wouldn't that be cool? The self-existent, eternal God appeared to you? Wow, how do I get on that list? Guys, you know what? He didn't have the Bible. And he didn't have the Holy Spirit. And you and I have both. Amen? And the Lord appears to us and speaks to us in a greater way, I believe, than any people who've ever lived outside of maybe the 12 apostles who walk, disciples who walk with the Lord. And you know what? Even for them, he said, I'm going away to leave you a helper. And the helper is determined to be even better in their lives because he never leaves them nor forsakes them. Amen? Well, Jesus Christ never would, but he went back to the Father, and now the Spirit of the living God dwells inside of them. So we look at Abram, and Almighty God's going to appear to him, but guys, the Lord not only appears to us, he lives in us. Amen? Praise God for that. Verse, so the first attribute of a man of faith, seeing his relationship with the Lord, he's at rest. Where before he was in fear, just two chapters ago, now we see him being able to sit in his tent and be at rest because he's trusting in the promises of God. Number two, he recognizes the Lord and he bows before him. Verse two, so he, lift up his eye, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, three men were standing by him. So Abraham is resting doing nothing slowly or seeking the Lord and may have been praying, as I said, may have been just nodding into a nap. And he looks up and he sees three men standing there. Now, there's no indication of where they came from. Did they walk in? Did they ride in? Where did they come from? He looked up and they were there. And you know what? So too, each of us need to be looking up. Amen? We need to be looking up. If he had kept his eyes down and never looked up and it was just, you know, in a pity party about the fact he didn't have a child and wasn't resting in the Lord, he could have missed out on what God had for him. But instead, he looks up, he sees these men coming toward the tent. And again, in Eastern culture, this was a common thing. They may have just been sojourners traveling by. So he looks up and he sees three men and his initial thought is probably, oh, okay, I need to reach out to these guys, show them some hospitality. So at first, he just looks up. But I love this part, and it says, And when he saw them, he ran from the tent of the door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. The word saw there in Hebrew, among its meanings, is to discern or to perceive. He recognized them as being more than just random travelers. He discerned and he perceived who it was who was walking by his tent. It's possible, I don't know for sure, that he may have been praying and asking God to continue to reveal himself. You know, Lord, you came and you've spoken to me numerous times. Lord, speak to me again. Lord, you've told me I'm going to have a son. When's it going to happen? He's sitting there, he's at rest, and now he looks up and he sees someone and recognizes that one of them is the Lord. Pastor Dave's opinion, Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. And he would recognize him because Jesus had appeared to him. This would be the third time, if you believe Melchizedek, as I do, is Jesus Christ. So for the third time, he sees Jesus. Oh, hey, that's the Lord. And he gets up, and I love this picture because here's this 99-year-old guy. Now, you would, expect, you would expect him to be sitting in the flap of the tent in the shade, right? Hey, I'm 99. 
right? Where else am I going to be? Right, he's sitting it, but notice when he sees the Lord, he runs. Can you picture a 99-year-old guy running through the desert? And I love that picture because it shows me that when we look to the Lord, when we have our eyes upon the Lord, it moves us from sitting and resting to moving for him. You know, what's going to motivate us to get up and move? What's going to motivate us to get up and, and get out of our comfort zone and seek after the things of God and pursue him with the whole heart? Getting a glimpse of him, hearing from him. He recognized and then he ran. He moves quickly from rest into action, and the heat that had slowed him before is no longer an issue. This 99-year-old man wakes up, gets up, and runs to them. And I love, again, running in the heat from a place of inactivity and quiet rest and seeking relief from the heat to a place of urgency and anxious anticipation. From rest to racing in a moment. You know, my prayer is that, Lord, there'd be times I would wait upon you and rest in you, but Lord, I pray that any moment you want to move me to do anything, that I would be sensitive to the leading of your Holy Spirit. Amen? And my encouragement to all of us is the same, that we need to rest in him, but we need to be listening to that still, small voice. What had caused such a complete and quick change in an attitude and actions of this man of faith? Got a 99-year-old man to get up and run through the heat. He recognized who it was. It says he bowed himself to the ground and said what? My Lord. Bowed himself, the word there in Hebrew is shakah. The word shakah means to bow down, to prostrate oneself. Prostrate oneself. Prostrate flat on the ground. Lay flat on your face before a superior person in homage, an act of worship before Almighty God. So this is the usual word for worship. So he ran and he bowed himself to the ground. He laid flat on his face before and he said to him, My Lord. My Lord, the word there is Adonai. And he says, Adonai, my Lord. And this is not a word for some. Now, some have said, well, this just means any person that you have respect for. Uh, We're not bowing down on our face to the ground to anyone but the Lord. Amen. Now, we show people honor and respect. and We have the heart of a servant, but we worship only one. And the word here is, for, is a word for worship, and the one he's worshiping, indeed, is the Lord. So this 99-year-old Abram, Abraham now, seeing Jesus, ran to him. And again, as when he looked up, he recognized Jesus. And so too, when we're in the middle of the desert times and the difficulty, we need to be looking for Jesus in the midst of it. Amen? When we're going through a tough time, realize that God is faithful, he's in control, and you know what? He's coming. He's going to appear in the midst of all of this. And so start looking for him. My boss is a jerk. Look for Jesus in it. Amen? Things are going tough. My Look for Jesus in it. Things are going difficult with my kids. Look for Jesus in it. In all of it, God is faithful. He's in control and he'll never leave us. So in the midst of the trials, I've been diagnosed with cancer. Look for Jesus in it. Whatever's happening, look for Jesus in the midst of it. He's out there and waiting. And it's, he's 99 years old and the child hasn't come. And he looks up and he sees the Lord coming to him in the midst of it. And then he says to him in verse 3, If I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Abram did not want the Lord to pass him by. Amen to that. Abram was like, you know, you know what I thought of here? I thought of the road to Emmaus. 
And I thought about after Jesus was resurrected and two of his disciples are walking down the road and the Lord comes up and they don't recognize him. And he basically says to him, Pastor Day paraphrase, so what are you guys talking about? And they go, what do you mean what are we talking about? What are you new here? Don't you know what's happened? You know, Jesus, you know, it'd be like someone saying today, who's Osama bin Laden? What are you talking about? Don't you pay attention? You know, what happens is instead he's, he begins to tell them everything about himself from the Old Testament. He relates to them every picture of himself from the Old Testament. And as they walk with him, they walk with him for several miles. They get to the end of the walk and they want him to stay. And then later they talk about, oh, how their hearts burned within them. They did not want him to leave. They wanted him to stay. Now, wouldn't you love a tape of that message? Jesus relating all the things in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by him. How awesome would that be? And so what happens is they want him there. And I thought of the same thing, that here the Lord comes, the Lord has appeared to him before. He says, Lord, you have to stay. You can't go. You've got to stay here. Please don't leave. You know what's so good for us, you guys? The Holy Spirit will never leave. God is in us. He's with us. He'll never leave us. So we see this sense of worship as he runs to him. He bows down before him. He beckons him to stay. When was the last time you came with that heart to the Lord? We literally came before him and you bowed down before him and you cried out to him and said, Lord, pour out your spirit upon me. That same heart, that same passion, that same fervor, not, you know, throwing up a, you know, a quick prayer over your Wheaties, but truly spending time in the presence of the Lord. Can I encourage you? We need to do that more. Amen? Turn off the TV, turn off the radio, put everything else away and spend time uninterrupted with him. You know, it's frustrating when you're trying to talk to somebody and they're paying attention to eight other things. You ever done that before? You're talking to somebody, they're looking over your shoulder, watching TV. You probably, if you have kids, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They're looking over your shoulder and they're watching TV and they're changing the thing and they're listening to their iPod and they're checking their text message. Hello, you take all this. You know, and sometimes we do that to the Lord. We've got eight things going on. Oh yeah, Lord, yeah, yeah. And you know what I mean? Hey, is he worthy to have 100% of our attention? And here we see, he's just like, look, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass on by. And notice what he says, your servant. He doesn't, you know, you got to understand something. Abram is the master in his house. Abram has hundreds of servants, if not thousands. He had 318 servants able to go out into battle. How many more servants did he have that were unable, that were too old or too young or the women or the children? How many did he have? He was the master, but when he saw Jesus, he quickly became the servant. Guys, in the eyes of the Lord, we must always be the servant. Amen? Always honoring him, always worshiping him, always esteeming him, always glorifying him. And we see here that heart in this man who, again, is described in the Bible as a man of great faith. So attributes of a man of faith, seeing his relationship with God. Number one, he's at rest with the Lord. Number two, he recognizes the Lord and bows before him. Number three, he has the heart of a servant. So he identifies himself as a servant. Now he begins to act like one. Look at verse four. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Washing of feet, even now in the Middle East, is very much a, a, an act of hospitality. And I, I will say this, having been to India four times and, and to Israel three times, 
I think we can lo- use a, a, a few lessons from them on hospitality. I mean, it's amazing. It's embarrassing how hospitable they are. It really is. You know, every time I go to India, I, I have to confess, and I know it's my own pride, it bugs me because I know when I get to their house, they're going to wash my feet. And they do. They make me, they make me sit down, and they, ta- and they all gather, and they wash your feet. And, you know, and, and again, it's, it's humbling because you feel so unworthy to be treated that way. But for them, that's their way of showing you, again, they have a heart of a servant towards you, of esteeming you, of welcoming you, of showing you hospitality. And so here we see the heart of this master in his house when he sees the Lord. And we notice there were three people there. Who are these other two guys? Angels. Pastor Day's opinion. Who else is going to be traveling with the Lord? So these angels come with him. And there's three coming, and he sees them, and he said, let's get some water. Now, it's interesting, later on, when in Luke chapter 7, Jesus visited the house of Simon the Pharisee, and a sinner woman walked up and washed his feet with her tears. You remember that story? And Jesus said, turned to the woman, turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave, no, gave me no feet, water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. So this is an act of hospitality. He wants the Lord to be welcome in his house. Is the Lord welcome in your house? If, if Jesus Christ showed up at your house, if you knew he was coming, how many things would you change? Amen? The Lord's coming? <laughs> I better check those movies. Ooh, that liquor cabinet. <laughs> Get rid of that. You know what I mean? Start going around your house. Ooh, that t-shirt, not appropriate. You know what I mean? It's amazing. But here, guys, guess what? He's always there. And so, our, and you know what? I just love this picture, though, that he wants the Lord. You know what, Lord? You're welcome in my house. I want you to be refreshed in my home. I want, you, I want to lay out the, the red carpet for you. Rest yourselves under the tree, in the shade, out of the heat of the desert sun. But it doesn't end there, verse 5. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. Abram wants to be a source of refreshment to the Lord. You know, I love that. Guys, he refreshes us, but do you know that you can be a blessing to him? We don't think that way because, let's face it, We're sinners in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? But do you know what? The Bible talks about our offerings and our worship being a sweet-smelling aroma in His presence. And it blesses Him. We can minister to the Lord by just laying down our lives for Him and loving Him and lifting up His name and praising Him. Such a, you know, I can't believe that I can somehow be a blessing to God. He's a blessing to me always. How can I be a blessing back? And here we see this heart. I want to refresh you. I want to minister to you. And he says a morsel of bread. This is really a huge understatement because he's going to go way beyond that. Now, if the Lord showed up at your house for dinner, what would you prepare? Yeah, it wouldn't be Wheaties. I mean, I would probably be like, okay. uh, I know me. I'd be calling someone to come fix something because I got no idea, right? And so... Here he see him, he says, let me make a morsel of bread that it may refresh you. He wants the Lord to be comfortable in his home. And again, this is going to be a huge feast. Now look what he says here. I love this again. That you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your what? Servant. Second time. 
to your servant. Again, master of the house, hundreds of servants. When it comes to Jesus, he's simply the servant. You know, he doesn't try to tell God how, how famous he is. How foolish is that? But yet we do that. People love to talk about the resume. I have to even confess. I'm going to be real transparent. You're the Wednesday night crowd. You guys are a little, right? So a little more tight knit, all right? I remember being at a pastor's thing in D.C., and when they would introduce these pastors, I wanted to throw up. Because, oh, and he's done this, and he's done that. And, he, you know, and they're going on for 10 minutes. I'm like, dude, get over yourself. You're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. How about that? Amen? But we like to like boast about how one, and can you imagine Abraham had said, yeah, I'm the master of the land, and these are all my servants over here. Let me parade them out in front of you. Lord. That would be the stupidest thing in the history of the universe. Instead, what does he say? You gave me everything, God. Amen? You know, God, I was down in Egypt. I was kind of blowing it. You're the one that brought the thing that got me out of there. How in the world would I, oh, and the riches that came, that was, well, I was actually, you blessed me even though I was blowing it. Yeah, God, you did all of this. Amen? But yeah, there's this part of us that wants to swell up with pride like we've accomplished something. Without him, we can do what? Nothing. And nothing means nothing. So we can do nothing apart from him. So guys, when we come before the Lord, where else should we be but on our face in desperation, seeking him with the heart of a servant? Amen? And here's, here's Abram. Let me get you a morsel of bread. I'm nothing but your humble servant. Lord, what in the world can I do? And then he says, and he, must, he loved this. He says to him, they said, they said, the three men, do as you have said. So Abraham getting the word from the Lord, excited that the Lord's going to stay at his house. Can you imagine? He's going to stay. So what does he do? It says there, verse 6, so Abram hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly make three measures of fine meal and knead it and make cakes. Hey, Sarah, we got three guests. One of them's God. I think the other two are angels. Make some food. No pressure, though. Don't worry about it. Can you imagine? <laughs> Almighty God came for dinner, make something. And I do find it interesting that they had to, they had to make bread because they didn't have bread. Why didn't they have bread? Because they made fresh bread every day because they didn't have preservatives back then. And in the heat of the desert, you know, you leave bread around for a day or two, it's, you know, it's a cannonball, right? And, but it gives a whole nother meaning to give us this day our daily bread. Amen. Because every day they had to make their bread. Because every day they had to trust the Lord for his provision. And so he goes in and says, make three morsels. That's for the three guests who were there. Notice making nothing for himself, all of it for them. That's the heart of a servant. Thinking not of himself, but thinking of the Lord. And so Sarah says, you know, says to Sarah, quick, make the food. Verse 7, and Abram ran to the herd and took a tender and good calf and gave it to a young man and he hastened to prepare it. Notice again, he's giving the Lord the best he has. He goes out, and he said he was going to give him a morsel of bread. Is this a little more than a morsel of bread? Now he's gone and got a, a young calf, right? And he's got, and he's, he's having the guy, I mean, by the way, this is taking some time to prepare this meal. He didn't call in and out burger and order, you know, three number ones to go. That's not what happened. What happened was he had to slaughter the calf and then butcher the calf and then barbecue, you know, and then make the food. His wife's kneading it and baking it and cooking it in the oven. And, you know, this is a long process. But that's the heart of a servant. Heart of a servant says, whatever it takes, I'll do it. And then we notice here he says, but notice verse 8. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he prepared and set it before them. Now, this is a side note. Jewish tradition today says because of the 
verse in Leviticus, it says not to boil the calf or the goat in the mother's milk. They will not eat dairy and meat together. If you go to Israel today or you go into a Jewish person's home that, that honors these restrictive laws, they'll have dairy dishes and meat dishes. I mean dishes, plates. Why? Because they don't want to accidentally... And so they've taken this totally out of context because notice Jesus Christ right here is eating the Lord, Adonai, right? Even from their Old Testament perspective. He is eating the calf with butter and milk, right? That's a misinterpretation of Scripture because really he was saying literally when you go into Canaan... There is a pagan ritual where they will boil an animal in its mother's milk and it's really a pagan ritual and I want you to have no part of it. That's what it means. But see what happens? Sometimes we strain at the religiosity. We strain at the, at the gnat and swallow the whole camel. That's what the Lord said. You know, you strain at a gnat but you swallow a camel. Gnat's the smallest unclean animal and camel's the biggest one. You know, here they are, you know, trying to keep the right plates in the house, but they miss the Messiah, Jesus Christ. I think we got a problem. Guys, we need to stop straining at the law and start falling in love with the Lord. Amen? The law can't save us. Only the Lord can. And a natural outpouring of being in love with the Lord is a life walking in obedience to Him that supersedes the law. Amen? goes beyond it. There's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt wash the dishes for your wife. There's not a verse for that. But you know what? When we're walking in the Spirit and we're being sensitive to His leading, there's times when God's going to tell us to do that. Amen? So again, walk in the Lord. Walk with Him. I know I got a little sidetracked, but just an important point to make there that we see how we can get away. We can start straining at the, the letter of the law instead of seeing the one whom the law pointed to. The law is a taskmaster that leads us to the cross, the Bible says. The law reveals our sin and our need for a Savior. So don't put your trust in the law, put your trust in the Lord. So here Abraham is, he's being extremely hospitable. He's going above and beyond. He's bringing out the best that he has. And at the same time, there's at least a part of me that wonders, he must have been anxious to think, why is the Lord here? He walked by for a reason. I'm glad he's here. If he stays here and says nothing, I'm happy with that. But you know what? The Lord usually when he shows up has something to say. And so he's like, well, I'm going to just serve him and I'm going to minister to him and I'm going to be right here. And if he has something to say, I want to be ready to hear it. And guys, that's how we ought to be with the Lord. We ought to come and wait and rest. And sometimes we need to be talking less and listening a little more. Amen? We love to download our list on God. Okay, God, in my list. Stuff you already know is we should pray anyway. Amen? But sometimes we need to just stop and be still and listen. Okay, Lord, speak to me. Lord, I want to hear from you. And notice what it says at the end of verse 8. And he set, he set the milk and the calf and everything before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. So after the meal was prepared, Abraham stood by while they ate, they ate in order to serve them and to attend to their every need. Again, this is what happens every time I go to India, and I, almost, I just feel so unworthy. They will serve you. You'll be at somebody's house. They invite you over. They serve you, and then they don't eat. They stand up next to you and watch you eat, and every time your glass is half, they go and get another one. And if you start to they, they run, and if you even look like you think you might be missing something, they run and go get what they think it is and bring it back. 
and if there happens to be any food left over after you're done eating, then they'll eat after you leave. This is where Abraham is. He's standing there. He's thinking nothing of himself. He wants to do nothing but be a servant. Guys, this is where God can use us in the most mighty and powerful way when we stop thinking of ourselves and we seek only to serve God. Amen? Quit worrying about you. Quit worrying. It's not about our comfort, about him being glorified. And in the middle of all that, guys, we're his kids. He's going to take care of us. Amen? He loves us. He's a gracious God. He's thinking about us. We need to be thinking about him. So he's, he's there and he's waiting and he's got that heart of hospitality. It's interesting, it does say in Hebrews, do not forget to entertain strangers for by doing so, some have entertained angels unaware. That's exactly what's happening here. He's probably, he may be very aware, but he's entertaining them. And it might seem strange that Jesus and these angels would eat food. People say, why are they eating food? They don't eat food. But you know what? Even the Lord, after he had risen from the dead, he ate with them. Not because he had to, but he wanted to. And God, you know, again, it's a, an act of him coming to him and wanting to minister to the Lord. And again, the Lord doesn't need us to minister to him, but it blesses him when we do. Amen? Same thing's happening here. And so he simply serves. He waits upon the Lord, no doubt, wanting to hear from the Lord. We see a mark of faith and maturity that he's not, okay, Lord, why are you here? So what do you got to say? I'm, I'm okay, I'll give you the food. Now come on, come on. You don't see that. You just see him resting, waiting upon the Lord. Here's a mark of some spiritual maturity, not trying to push God, not striving, waiting, resting. If the Lord has something to say, he'll tell him. I'm just going to stand right here, and I'm going to serve him. Attributes of a man of faith that rests with the Lord, recognizes the Lord, bows down before him, has the heart of a servant, and then believes God can do all things even when others doubt. Then they said to him, where is Sarah your wife? So he said, here in the tent. So Sarah's in the tent humbly serving. She's behind the scenes. She's right there. She can hear. We're going to find out in a couple of verses. She can hear. And I have an idea. She's probably really close to the edge of the tent listening. But she's making the food, you know, and she's there listening. And, the, you know, it's a tent. It's not a wall. It's a tent. It's canvas. And she can hear what's going on on the other side. And he says, where is Sarah? She's humbly serving. She's out of the way. But she's listening intently. And again, the Lord has a word for her. Look at verse 10. And he said, he's capitalizing your Bible, that's for a reason. And the word, the one who's he there is the Lord. He said, I will certainly return you according to the time of your life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which is, was behind him. So the Lord is speaking. He's reminding Abraham of his earlier promise. But he's really delivering the message to his wife, Sarah. Verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old. And the Bible just shoots straight, doesn't it? Now, that's not a politically correct term anymore, is it? If you call someone, someone could be 167 years old, and if you called them old, they'd be offended. Right? We don't do that anymore. You know, even in churches, we don't do that. I find it's the, you know, the, 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 the group for the, you know, it's the seasoned saints, or the sunshiners, or the, the young at heart, or something, right? But this is just straightforward. They were old. And then it says this. 
They were old, well-advanced well in age. And you know what? It's interesting. If you have an old King James, it says well-stricken in age. Doesn't it? Anybody got an old King James? Well-stricken in age. Age does its damage. That's what it's saying. They were well-stricken in age. They wore out. That's what he's saying. They're old and they're wore out, right? Hey, guys, it's when the odds are stacked up that we get to see God be glorified. It's when a, a, little, a young teenage boy goes out against 11-foot, 750-pound Goliath covered in armor with an armor bearer in front of him holding a, you know, a, a staff the size of a weaver's beam with a 15-pound head of the spear. And the guy's out there, you know, wearing a, you know, and got a stick, or not even a stick, but a slingshot and a rock. That's when God's glorified, amen? When it seems impossible. They were old, well stricken in age. It was way past time. It was too late. And look what it says. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah, what did she do? What did her husband do when he heard last time? He laughed. What did they name their son? Isaac, his name means what? He laughs. Constant reminder of their faithlessness. Everything they call them in. He laughs. Time to eat. He laughs. Right? Constant reminder of how faithless they were when God had told them that they were going to have a son. So what does Sarah do? Says She laughed within herself saying, after I have grown old, how shall I have pleasure my Lord being old also? She laughs in disbelief. But notice it says she laughed, what? Within herself. That means nobody else heard her laugh. She doubted both. Abraham had no doubt already told her, and she doubted him. Now God tells her, and she doubts him. But you know what? I love how God answers questions that people never ask and responds to things they think nobody else heard. Look at verse 13. And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Now she's sitting behind the thing going, Please, that ain't going to happen. She's laughing at herself. And then the Lord, why did Sarah laugh? You know, how did he? No, but, you know, and don't you just love, you know, he does it to the Pharisees all the time. You ever notice that? The Pharisees think within themselves, how can he cling to And then he turns around and answers their question. And you would think that would be time of repentance right there, amen? I mean, I was thinking a question, he answered it. I was just thinking it, you know. I think that would be time. And here the same thing happens. This question reveals his true identity to Sarah. The same God who knows her thoughts would be the same God who would not only give her a child, but through her would make a great nation. And one day the Messiah who would save every man, woman, and child who would turn to him. All going to come through her. And she's sitting in there going, I don't think so. This doesn't seem right. Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Who's saying this? The Lord. Jesus says, is anything too hard for the Lord? This is not a question. This is a rhetorical statement. Amen? Is anything too hard for God? Is it too hard for God to cure someone of cancer? What's the answer? Is it too hard for God to save our unsaved family? Is it too hard for God to bring us the husband or wife that we've been desiring? Is it too hard for God to use us to touch others? Is it too hard for God to turn Santa Cruz into the Bible Belt of California? God can do it, right? So we got to understand that God is greater. And the time that we are overwhelmed is when we look at things through our circumstances and our physical limitations, and then we doubt God. But when we look at it through His eyes, nothing is impossible with God. Amen? 
Guys, our circumstances or our situation is over, overwhelm, only overwhelming if our God is small. If our God is great, our circumstances are nothing. He put the stars in the sky like that. Amen? He's, it's incredible. You know, it's amazing. I was just talking to my daughter about this yesterday. I fell off, I was, a few weeks ago, not very smart, I fell off a bench. I was at a baseball game, and I jumped down from the grandstands. And I thought I was a little closer. and it was, I, it was actually about six feet below me. I thought it was about six inches. So that's a bad move. But I cut myself like, like that. And I had a bruise. It was gnarly. And what's been amazing is watching how my body, the Lord, the Lord did it, healed itself. I didn't put anything on it. I didn't touch it. I watched it. I think, man, our God just does that. Amen? You, you, look, at, you look at the human body. You look at a stranded in the, I mean, that's our God. He's big enough to do that. He can take care of whatever the problem is. Sarah, you can be 500 years old. It doesn't make any difference our God is greater. He can absolutely do it. And you know what? It's when we come to the place where it seems impossible that God is most glorified. So guys, don't let, nothing is too hard for God. Is anything too hard for God? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. He'd already told her when it was going to happen. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. So she's not only faithless, she's a liar. And she says, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. And again, arguing with God, not a good idea. Argument you will never win. So she's saying, well, no, I, I didn't laugh. Yeah, yeah, you did. You laughed. I heard you. I still love you. I know you're faithless, but I'm still going to do great things in your life. I'm still a faithful God. I showed up. I told you you laughed when you laughed because I wanted to show you that I am God, who I say that I am. And when you have that child, you really know that I'm God. So I'm still faithful, God. I'm still going to love you. That's what God does for us. Amen? Prayer hasn't been answered in your life. Doesn't mean that God's not powerful enough to do it. It means he hasn't chosen to do it yet. Amen? And he may not do it at all, but if he doesn't do it, it's because it's what's best for his name and for his glory, so praise God. Amen? Too often we think, well, that's just too overwhelming. It's not because God's not great enough. God's plenty great enough. God's great enough to give Sarah a child. He's great enough to to take care of us as well. Nothing is too difficult for God. And you know what? We can't hide anything from him. Just ask Sarah. So, Attributes of a man of faith, at rest with the Lord, recognizes the Lord and bows before him, has the heart of a servant, believes God can do all things, even when others doubt, and then lastly, intercedes on behalf of others. We'll go through this fairly quickly, but notice this here. Then the men arose, who, which men are these? This is the Lord and the angels that are with them, from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abram went with them to send them on their way. So after the message had been given concerning Sarah, it became apparent that the men had another mission to perform. Having blessed the faithful, they would now bring judgment upon the wicked. It's interesting in the same chapter, the blessing of the faithful, and here comes judgment upon the wicked. They're headed down to Sodom. But notice that Abraham is walking with them, hey, I'm going to walk with the Lord as long as I can. I want to be near him as long as I can. I want to stay close to him as long as I can. Where else am I going to go? What else do I have to do? There's nothing else on my agenda more important than this. Let's put it all aside and walk with him as long as we can and as far as we can. For you and I, the good news is he never, ever leaves. Verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? You know, the Lord knows, of course, everything 
But he knows that he's going to be using Abram to bring forth a great nation. And he wants Abram to learn a lesson here, I believe, that wickedness produces righteous judgment. And he wants him to understand that God's a God of love and grace and mercy, and he will reach out and he will reach out and he will reach out. But while he suffers long, he won't suffer always. And there is a time when man will be given what they've asked for. And so he's going to reveal to Abraham the judgment that is about to come upon Sodom. But I believe it's a lesson for him and the nation that would follow that if we turn to wickedness and turn away from God, we can expect righteous judgment. Verse 18. Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. It's interesting, you turn to, don't turn there, but in Galatians 3, it says this, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In him all the nations shall be blessed. So Abram is going to be a source through whom all of us have been blessed because the Messiah came through his line. Verse 19, For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So why is he going to show him the righteous judgment upon Sodom? That they may keep the way of the Lord, as it says in verse 19. Guys, when we see the heavy consequences of sin, it's a reminder to us that walking obedient before God is not only the right thing, it's the healthy thing. Amen? Sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end it leads to death. There's nothing that sin has to offer that is worth it. And he's making that point. He's going to drive it home to Abraham. And the Lord said, verse 20, because of the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, because their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against which it has come. And if not, I will know. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah has reached a point of no return. And the Lord is going to demonstrate how justly he uh, assesses the time for judgment. He goes down. He gives them every opportunity. He already knows. He gives them every opportunity to turn back to him. And we're going to see that that continues on even into the end of this chapter and the next. The sin of Sodom and Gomorrah was particularly inexcusable because if you remember a few chapters ago, the Lord, they had seen the power of the Lord through Abraham. Remember, they were captured and he came and delivered them out of bondage and this should have been a time of repentance and restoration. And instead, they went right back to their wickedness. God gives every single person on this planet an opportunity to know him. He's a loving, gracious, and merciful God. Amen? His desire is that none should perish. No, not one. He loved the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He does not stand up there, you know, like the world portrays him with a lightning bolt in his hand, just waiting for someone to blow it to smoke them. That's not our God. He wants to see us saved. He wants to see us walking with him, and he proved it by sending his son. Amen? That's the ultimate proof. So we see here, they had heard the word, they had seen God's power, and even Lot must have witnessed to them in some degree, but who knows how much because he's living just like him. And God had given a special opportunity to know him, and and they had rejected him and fell into more and more wickedness, and now they're going to face God's righteous judgment. Verse 22. 
Then the men turned away from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood there before the Lord. So the two men go down. We're going to talk about this next week. If you've read the Bible, you know what happens. It's not pretty. But they go down, and the Lord stays there with Abraham. Now, watch what Abraham does. Because Abraham could have been bitter that Lot chose the more lush ground. He could have said, oh, well, Lot's getting what he deserves. He could have had such an attitude, but instead, Lot is bur- or Abraham is burdened for Lot and his family. And all those who he had just rescued, not, not, not long before that, when they had been taken captive. And so we see that he has a heart for them and a burden for them. Let's finish up. Verse 24. Wait a minute, verse 22. Then the men turned away, but the, Abraham stood still before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? It's a question people still have today. Would you destroy the righteous with the wicked? He asked the Lord. It's a good question. Verse 24. Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare for the 50 righteous who were, were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteousness, the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right. Now it seems almost like he's rebuking God, doesn't it? But he's really coming to him in his character and saying, God, I know your character, and you're not a God who would kill the righteous with the wicked. Far be it that your name would be harmed by the wicked, the righteous receiving the same judgment as the wicked. Now again, when we pray, we ought to pray according to the nature and the will of our God. Amen? Not what we think God ought to do, but Lord, I know your heart, I know your will, I know your desire for the lost, Lord, because of who you are and your grace, I pray for my neighbor to be saved. Amen? We pray according to his will. We don't demand of God. We come, at him, come to him according to his perfect will. And then it says this, verse 26. So the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I'll spare all the place for their sake. If there's 50 righteous, I'll save the whole city. Then Abraham answered and said, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes. Notice the humility as he comes to the Lord. And this is how we ought to always come to the Lord, Amen. Not, not boastful, not commanding. I hear people demand God do things when they pray. Don't do that. Lord, you need to do it, and you better, and I demand. Oh, no, no, no. He comes and says, ashes taken upon myself, I speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack of five? So he said, the Lord responds, if I find there are 45, I'll not destroy it. He spoke to him yet again. You know, he keeps going, well, I Got down to 45. Let's see if we can get a little further. And he says, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 be found. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. So he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak, but once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. What is Abraham doing? He's interceding on behalf of the people of Sodom. He's coming before the Lord and praying to the Lord for people who will not cry out to the Lord themselves. He's coming on their behalf. And he's, 
And, and you know what? He's not negotiating with God. God doesn't need negotiations. They're actually on the same page with the same heart. And God's desire is not to destroy the righteous. Now, somewhere in his mind, Abraham might have thought, well, Lot, and he's got those daughters and his wife. Maybe just Lot's family would be enough to save the whole city. We're going to find out next week how that works out. But Abram prayed 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, each time the Lord agreed. But notice the principles we see here. God doesn't want to bring judgment. He wants to bring deliverance. But if man rejects him, he will bring judgment. He responds to the prayers of those who righteously intercede on behalf of others. Again, giving Sodom and Gomorrah an opportunity to to be delivered. But notice this, the remarkable influence that a tiny minority may have for good, even in the midst of a perverse and wicked city. You know what? Our country has no idea how blessed they are that there are Christians living here. Amen? Or even Santa Cruz. This goes on the radio, I'll catch you, but that's okay. The Lord loves the people in the city, but they think that their political agenda is what's rescuing the people. It's for the grace of God, for the righteous who are here, the Christians who live here, that God has not brought heavy-duty judgment upon this county. Amen? That's an absolute fact. We see it here in Sodom and Gomorrah. God is saving, and notice this, we'll see it next week, I want to get ahead of it a little bit, but notice, he does not bring the destruction until he takes the righteous out. Guys, that's a picture of the rapture of the church. God will not pour out his wrath upon his children, he will deliver us first before the righteous judgment of God comes, amen? Because he said it's finished on the cross, he already took it for us. He already took it. By his stripes we are healed, Amen? He is the one who is wounded for our transgressions. He will not wound us. No, we may may suffer persecution at the hands of an ungodly world, but God will never, ever bring harm upon his children. He doesn't do that. He loves us. Amen? And so he will deliver us. Notice, too, that his prayer is fervent and it's persistent, and he trusts God and he appeals to the righteous character and nature of our loving God. So, in closing... The attributes of a man of faith seen in the relationship with the Lord. Number one, he's at rest with the Lord. Number two, he recognizes the Lord and bows down before him. Number three, has the heart of a servant. Number four, believes God can do all things even when others doubt. And then finally, intercedes on behalf of others and has a heart of compassion toward those who are outside of God's will. Guys, we should not be self-righteous over those who are sinning and away from God, we ought to be compassionate and broken and reaching out to them in love. Amen? Because therefore the grace of God is every single one of us. We need to reach out to them. That's not, you know what? So many people are grieved and so many people mock the church because people are so self-righteous. Guys, if we've truly come to understand who we are in Christ and the depths of his grace, we have nothing to be proud about and everything to be worshipful and broken for. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you even for the examples that words written thousands of years ago have for us today. And Lord, I pray that we would be men and women of faith, Lord, men and women who believe your word and live like it, Lord, and that our faith would be reflected, in our, first and foremost, in our relationship with you. We'd believe your word. We'd act in obedience to your word. Lord, I, I do pray, Father, we, we want to intercede on behalf of this county. Lord, you love these people so much that you'd rather die than live without them. And Lord, it's not because we're better. It's not because 
we've done better things. But Lord, it's only by your grace that we've been saved. And so, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would break our hearts for the people of Santa Cruz County. Lord, that we would see them through your eyes. And Lord, that we would love them enough to reach out to them in love, even if it means sometimes we might be rebuked or chastised or made fun of. Lord, I just pray you'd help us to lay it in our lives completely for you. Father, I pray we'd walk so close to you we can hear that still, small voice. We can respond in obedience, Lord, as your Holy Spirit would lead us. So Lord, we love you and we praise you and we just put our lives into your hands. There's no better place for them. Fill us to to overflowing with your Holy Spirit. Help us to walk in the center of your will. We ask these things in your holy and your precious name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.